Hello, and welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm your host, Annie Galvin. I'm the associate editor at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and even rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us at Public Books on Twitter and Facebook, and we would love to hear your feedback there. So when today's guest, Alice Marwick, agreed to appear on this podcast, I had so many questions for her that it felt truly impossible to narrow them down to a reasonable number. My name's Alice Marwick. I'm an associate professor of communication and principal researcher at the Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Alice has researched everything from personal branding on social media to misinformation and politics. I'm not sure how she does this, psychologically speaking, but she has spent hours upon hours excavating the darkest corners of the internet. And I'm talking about white supremacist websites and really misogynistic discourses on Reddit and 4chan. I think Alice does this because she really gets that we cannot understand technology without thinking deeply about what humans are doing on that technology. So I'm really excited about this conversation, and I hope you'll learn as much from Alice Marwick as I did. Alice, thank you so much for agreeing to be on our podcast. I'm really excited to speak with you. I'd like to start with a question that we're asking all of our listeners. So what does being on the internet in 2020 feel like to you? Kind of fun, kind of <laughs> dull. I got that from Natasha Schull has this great book called Addiction by Design about video poker machines. And it's this idea that you're using things like video poker machines to sort of zone out from your regular life, that it creates this kind of interstitial space where the concerns of regular life don't really touch you, but it's not mm -hmm. like a fun space or an ecstatic space. It's just kind of a null space. Yeah, I think that's a really good good way to put it. And, you know, we all sort of pick our poison, <laughs> our platform or game of choice, but they all seem to have that kind of that uh, effect on us. So that's great. Thanks. And so I think it would also help to give our listeners just a little bit of context and background about the work that you do. And um, your work as a scholar has covered just a really impressively vast range of topics related to the internet, from social media and internet community to misinformation, privacy, radicalization, and you wrote about openness and Wikipedia for public books. It feels like you've kind of covered every um, all the hot topics around the internet. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about some of your most recent projects relating to the internet? Sure. So when I describe my work, I say that I'm a scholar of social media and basically anything about social media that interests me, I feel free to delve into. And so right now I would say that my research agenda has sort of two branches. Mm. The first branch is critical privacy studies. And I'm working on my second book right now, which is called mm. The Private is Political, Networked mm. Privacy on Social Media, where I'm looking at how the impact of networked privacy violations are felt most deeply by people who are marginalized in other areas of their life. So I'm tr mm. trying to integrate this critical theory of power into our understanding of privacy. And then my other set 
of interests have to do with disinformation, misinformation, and radicalization. And and that's obviously like, that's the kind of new, hot, sexy thing. And the right. privacy thing feels a little old school at this point. But what both of them have in common is that they're trying to look at impacts of new technologies in a way that recognizes that those impacts are differential. Mm. And that if we need to, if, to understand technology, we have to incorporate theories of power that are drawn from feminist theory, critical race theory, and queer theory, because they help us understand how technology right. actually plays out in people's daily lives. Like, I'm not interested in making huge generalizations about tech does A or tech does B or Facebook does this or that. I'm interested in looking at both the positives and the negatives and nuances and recognizing that nothing is all good or all bad. And that when you actually get into how people use technology, you often find that the stories are more complicated or more complex than they might appear at first Mm. glance. Yeah, I think that's so interesting how you're bringing these kind of these areas from humanistic study together with technology studies. And we can definitely keep, I mean, this will come up over and over again in the conversation, I think. But our kind of larger question for this episode is what is the internet doing to society? And in order to explore that, it seems crucial to understand how these platforms make money off of us, their users. And, you know, I think a lot of us hear about data a lot in the news these days, how these quote unquote free platforms like Facebook, Google, Uber, all of our apps make money off the data they collect about users and sell to other corporations. But I think a lot of us didn't totally understand how this happens, how if I buy a baby shower gift for a friend, you know, all of a sudden the internet feels like I'm expecting a child as well. Um, So I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through the journey of a piece of data. So if we focus on Facebook for a second, When I put a set of personal data into my profile, like my age, hometown, profession, relationship status, where exactly does that data go? Can you kind of walk me through the journey of that data from my fingers striking the keys to me starting to see these targeted ads online? So Facebook is famously opaque about what its data practices actually are. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I'm about to say is my best guess based on things that I've learned over the years about how a large social platform like Facebook works. Um, And Facebook is probably the best at doing this. So say I, you know, say I'm scrolling through Instagram, which Facebook owns, and I Mm -hmm. click on an ad for a fancy pair of slippers on Instagram, right? Something I I get marketed stuff like that all the time, right? Yoga leggings, Mm -hmm direct-to-consumer slippers, all those kinds of things. I'm also a sucker for that kind of stuff, and I buy a lot of it. So they already know (laughs) that, you know, you show me fancy slippers, maybe I'm going to buy them. So I click through to the website, and I complete the transaction. So I've now bought slippers. So Instagram and Facebook, which is the same data backend, right, they share all the same information Mm -hmm. and the same profiles about their users. They now have another piece of information about me. They know the time of day that I clicked on the ad, They know how many times they showed me the ad before I clicked on it. They know what I was doing before and after I clicked on the ad. So that piece of of information about me, which they already have my age, my closest friends, what my closest friends buy. They know where I live. They know how my tastes have changed over the years. They know how much money I'm spending through all of these ads, etc. So this new piece of information about these slippers gets added to that data profile. Now, Facebook has made a big push over the last five years to try to integrate what you do online with what you do offline. 
So what Facebook mm-hmm. has done is invested really heavily in what's called onboarding, which is integrating your offline and online profiles. So if you go to J. Crew and you give them your email address at checkout, which a lot of the time every store is going to ask you for your phone number or your email address, that acts as a unique identifier that they can then match up with the data profile that they have on you on the internet. So they know oh. how much money I'm spending in Sephora online, and they know how much money I'm spending at Sephora offline. So they can look at the these slippers that I bought. They can look at other purchases that I've been making on other websites. Um, wow. They have a fairly comprehensive understanding of what my consumer behavior is at this point. So then they're able to do predictive modeling to decide what are the things that they can show me that I would be the most likely to click on. And they do that by classifying me as a consumer in some ways. So they'll, they have probably a consumer profile that's like, you know, upper middle class, 40 something suburban mom or something like that, right? Interested in fashion and entertainment and books. Put me in that right. bucket. And then they're going to serve me ads that are similar to ads that other people who are like me have clicked on. Mm-hmm. Then they're also going to use the slippers ad and say, okay, well, what other products are like these slippers? You know, maybe Mm. they have other kinds of, you know, shoes like Rothy's or whatever that they're going to show me. Um, So they're using this enormous amount of information they have about me. And they're combining it with information they have not just about me, but about everybody that I'm connected to and about, you know, a large demographic group of people who are similar to me to predict what I'm going to do when I'm online. Alice, when I was reading your work, one thing that I learned about from it that I didn't know about really before was these third-party data brokers um, who, and please correct me if I'm wrong, yeah, basically act as kind of third-party mediators between, or a third-party marketplace between the apps that are collecting the data and other corporations who can use that data for their marketing purposes. Could you tell us what a data broker is and what it does? A data broker is a company that buys and sells personal data. So Mm -hmm. they aggregate data from like a huge variety of sources. So public records, like mortgage records, driver's licenses, campaign contributions, in some states, gun licenses, anything like that, um, along with any information that they can mine off of just scraping social media sites Um, Mm. combined with these consumer profiles that are created on social media sites or by different companies. And then they slice and dice all this data in a million different ways, and they sell lists of people to different actors. So Mm. say you're starting a... Say you're starting a, you know, a, a magazine for cigar smokers or something. It's probably a poor business decision in 2020, but say that's what you're doing and you want a list of people you think might be interested in this. You can go to a data mm-hmm. broker and you can buy a list for that. You can also buy a list of people who are older, who have less money, who are maybe in financially difficult straits. Uh, you, if you're, you know, if you are maybe doing a somewhat illegitimate or less legitimate business, like you want to send, I don't know, lottery come-ons or commemorative plates or MLMs or some scammy thing, you can also buy lists of people that you think might be more likely to fall for those things. Um, and then, so all this information is totally opaque. 
It's really hard for people to see what information the data brokers have on them. Um, right. Sometimes they sell this information to the U.S. government, even though some of it is information that the government isn't legally allowed to acquire. And because none of us know what's in those files, none of them, none of us know when decisions are being made based on this data. Because right. this data gets used in a huge variety of different ways, from policing algorithms to, you know, these these uh, databases that determine whether you're a good credit risk or whether you might be a good employee or even whether you might you should be accepted into college or not. Yeah, and I definitely want to um, talk a little bit more about those um, issues in a bit. But I just wanted to follow up and ask, are these data brokers, I mean, is this a new, um, like a new phenomenon that's grown up alongside the internet and the extremely, the extremely fine-tuned micro-targeting that, that can be done? Or were these a feature of advertising prior to social media? They start with sort of direct mail and junk mail solicitation in the 80s, maybe 70s and mm. 80s. And then they get bigger and bigger and bigger and more concentrated the more you go on. So the modern ones like Axiom are very much tied to the emergence of the internet. Um, the ability to micro-target is so much more sophisticated than it was 30 years ago, right? Like, you can decide that you want to buy a Facebook ad that's targeted to people who are within 25 and 30, who live in the Lower East Side and Murray Hill, who are into astrology and who have a cat. Yeah. Like, you can go on Facebook <laughs> right. and you can fill out all those fields and you can say, okay, my new age pet emporium on first and Houston, this is where these these are my potential customers, right? So yeah. the ability to collect all that information about people, and also the way to be incredibly agile and nimble with it, to be able to target really quickly and really precisely, is new because of the internet. What you were just saying about how I mean, what really kind of blew my mind about what you were saying is the way that our online behavior and offline purchases are starting to be more and more integrated because that, I mean, I think when we're online, we're sort of aware that, you know, someone's watching us, we're being tracked, but that just feels like, I don't know, it's just, it's just crazy that, you know, I, I purchase things online and offline and I really had no idea that that was happening. Yeah. I mean, a couple of years ago, I realized that virtually all of my students who at the time were young millennials and who now are kind of like the older Gen Z they all believe that their phones listen to them and that micro-targeted advertising was delivered to them based on the things that they said to their friends or their mom or whatever. And no matter how much Facebook says that's not true and how often I hear from engineers that that's not technically possible because of the amount of data that would have to be processed in real time in order for that to happen – the fact that people think that's real is because these data practices are so unbelievably intrusive that we don't even realize how much data is being collected. It, they don't need to listen to us. They know where we are. They know where we are when we're walking around. They knew who we're interacting with, right? Like, if I'm chatting with someone on Instagram, Facebook knows that. If I'm tagging a friend in a in a uh, a picture that I took yesterday, Facebook knows where and when the picture was taken. It knows who's in that conversation. Yes, there are still enough uncanny coincidences that I still somewhat think Facebook might be listening. It's really hard not to believe that sometimes. But it really is a factor of the amount of information that's out there about us that's being collected without our consent, without our knowledge, and without 
basically any governmental oversight whatsoever. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that notion that they almost don't even need to listen to us is um, is really freaky, you know, that they're, these practices are so sophisticated already. Um, and it gets so complicated when there is that third party because, you know, maybe we think we think that we're just giving the information to Instagram, right? And so we think, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, they'll sell me more minimalist basic clothes <laughs> that I probably don't need. Um, but, you know, whatever. It's kind of this closed loop of commerce. Uh, but that notion that that data could end up in so many places that we don't know about, I think, is really kind of insidious. Why don't we now get into some of your work about the way that privacy impacts, you know, different populations differently. And some of your recently published articles have looked at how breaches in privacy affect different people differently. So specifically women and uh, lower income Americans. So let's start with gender. Can you explain what you mean when you say that privacy is gendered? So when I say privacy is gendered, what I mean is that there are certain privacy violations that are more likely to happen to people based on their gender and that the impacts Mm -hmm. are going to be different based on gender. So I coined this term in a study that I did of Celebgate, which was when Mm. a big trove of celeb nudes that were mostly selfies that were taken on cell phones were leaked to Reddit. And I was really interested in the sort of ethical ramifications of this because the difference between the way that the people on Reddit saw this, which was a sense of like entitlement and, oh, well, if they didn't want us looking at them nude, they shouldn't have taken these photos of themselves versus the women whose photos were leaked who basically two a one said, this is a sex crime. This is a violation of privacy. This is a this is sexist, this is misogynist. Mm. I was really interested in that disconnect. So what I did was I looked at all the comments on this subreddit called The Fappening, and I sort of looked at the way that they talked about these celebrities and these women. And what I found is is something that really kind of backed up another theory of privacy that a bunch of people have been working on for the last couple of years, which is that in the United States, we tend to think of privacy as an individual responsibility, that you Mm -hmm. are the person who is responsible for your own data. And if the data leaks, it's your fault, right? So if your password gets hacked, it probably wasn't a strong enough password. If your phone gets hacked, you shouldn't have taken those pictures to begin with. You shouldn't have left your phone somewhere. You shouldn't have been using a sketchy app or something like that, right? But what all this stuff ignores is the fact that these privacy violations happen over and over and over and that they're basically inevitable and that people are resigned to them and that people use social media or they use network technologies in general, not in a way that they know at some point there will be some kind of breach, right? No matter how careful you are, there's no way to get around it because these technologies intrinsically connect people together. So there was this real sense of entitlement from these men of looking at these women's bodies. And what we find is that there's this whole sort of set of privacy violations. Um, and this goes into a literature that a lot of other people have written about um, that's technologically abled sexual violence, where mm-hmm. you have all these things like um, uh, location tracking apps, for example, that an abusive partner might make their Mm. partner put on their phone Um, Uh, or doxing, um, leaking nudes, especially is a huge one. Putting 
someone's cutting and pasting someone's head on a porno- on pornographic imagery and sending it to like their boss, their friends, etc. There's this whole sort of set of privacy violations that are much, much, much more likely to happen to women. And when I start, mm. when I stopped seeing these as like these isolated incidences of harassment and started linking them to privacy and safety, I started understanding to what extent this was a gendered issue. And a lot of this stuff goes for non-binary and queer folks as well. Um, I certainly yeah. don't mean to or insinuate that this is only for cisgender women, but it's anyone whose gender I think makes them vulnerable in a way that gender becomes what security per, security experts would call an attack vector, which is basically a vulnerability that can be exploited. So mm-hmm. if you have someone you don't like for any reason, and that person is a woman or a non-binary person, then you can use their gender as a way to attack them. Yeah. And I mean, when you're talking about that notion of, you know, men online feeling entitled to be able to view women's bodies and also the kind of ideology of uh, individual responsibility, it starts to sound like, you know, in-person sexual violations as well, right? That these two kind of ideologies dovetail together. And um, it's just interesting to see the way that it all kind of feeds into the same issues that we were dealing with long before the internet. Yeah. So I was, I was really inspired by this strand of British feminist sociology that has been using this term called safety work, which is the work that women do to keep themselves physically safe in space. So, mm. yeah. you know, holding your keys with in your hand with one out, like you're going to like stab right. someone with it, looking behind you, avoiding certain parts of town, not riding the bus by yourself at night, being on the phone when you're in the Uber with your friend, like all these different kinds of things, right? There's this whole spectrum. And a bunch of women in British sociology had written about this for years. Um, and this woman, um, Fiona Vera Gray, kind of excavated this idea of safety work and brought it into the contemporary by interviewing all these women about, like, what did they do to keep themselves safe in yeah. their in their daily movements around the world? And I found this really, really interesting that this is a form of labor that's unequally distributed that women bear the burden of, and again, trans and non-binary people as well, and keeping themselves safe. And I started thinking about what if rather than thinking about the way that we try and protect our privacy as a set of things that are always lacking, we think about it as a kind of work that we're always doing. Um, Mm, And so in my new book, I've coined this term privacy work to encompass everything from having a password manager to making sure you can't see through your curtains to hiding your social security number to, mm. you know, all of these different things as this sort of in privacy work that because there is no systemic protection for privacy being yeah. violated, we all end up doing on our own time. Um, and I, I found that both men and women engage in privacy work. I don't really see a big gender difference in terms of the types mm-hmm. of privacy work that people do. But when people are very vulnerable, their circumstances make them vulnerable, their privacy work tends to be more elaborate. Um, just because right. they have so much more uh, at stake if it fails. But the problem is that no matter how hard you work at being private, there's always the risk that those violations are going to happen anyway. This podcast is a production of Public Books, a free online magazine where scholars, critics, activists, and other experts share their deep learning with the public. I'm Nicholas Dames, an editor-in-chief of Public Books, 
If you're enjoying this episode, you may also want to check out an essay in public books called The World Silicon Valley Made by Shannon Mattern, an anthropologist. The essay explores the mythology that's developed around the iPhone, thanks to Apple's marketing department, but also to the journalists and historians who've written about it. Who and what gets excluded when we talk about smartphones? And how do devices like the iPhone reinforce ongoing forms of exploitation? Visit publicbooks.org slash podcast for links to these and other relevant reads. So I want to shift to some of the work that you've done around poverty and lower income Americans and privacy. And you have a really interesting article, and I assume you're writing about this in your book as well, about how data mining and privacy violations have particularly harmful effects on low-income Americans, specifically in three realms, employment, so seeking jobs, college admissions, trying to get into college, and policing. And so um, why, don't we, why don't we focus on employment? Because we could talk forever about all three of them. Um, if a low-income American who has social media accounts is trying to get a job, how can the data that they enter on, the, on those social media profiles potentially be used against them? So a lot of low-wage jobs use many automated systems to hire, where people's information is put into a database and they're they're looking for kind of red flags, like, should I hire this person or not? Right. And so some of that is a low is things like, do you have a low credit score? Like, I guess that somehow has an impact on your employability. I don't know what that actually why that would make you a bad employee. Yeah. Um, But then one of the other things they do is they mine social media data. And so a lot of the times they will, there will be these products that employers can buy that will say, go through your social media and say whether you're using curse words or whether you're Mm. talking about drug use or whether you're talking about guns or something like that. And so you're taking all this information that typically an employer wouldn't have access to, you know, your private right. communicate your fr- your communications with your peers yeah. or your friends. And because it's on social media, a lot of the time it's accessible and it's being looked through not by a human, but by an algorithm. And they'll generate a score for you based on this information. Like, is this somebody that is worth taking a risk on employing? And, and the problem with that is that since you have no idea that that's why you were denied the job, you can't do anything about it. You can't correct this record. Mm. You can't say, oh, you got me mixed up with somebody with the same name. Or that's a tweet that I made seven years ago, right? It has no bearing on my current life. So a lot of the times these these systems will deny people jobs and people don't even know that that's why they didn't right. get the job. Yeah. That's interesting. And maybe briefly, could you touch on some of the ways that this is used in policing? Just so I think maybe people have heard a little bit about this, but what is something kind of startling that you found from your research about how, you know, voluntarily putting data into various online systems can end up affecting uh, how, how policing is done? So predictive policing is a policing technique where you are it's almost like minority report. You're trying to de- figure out where the crime is going to happen before it takes place because you want to be able to deploy your officers or whoever to parts of the t- of town where there's high crime rates. And we know that crime rate tracking, like New York City's Comstat system, has had an enormous impact on the way that different communities are impacted by police and, frankly, by police violence, right? Yeah. So predictive policing that uses big data is often using the same kind of information 
that drawn from social media or drawn from public records to determine a threat score for mm. individual houses, individual blocks, or individual people. Right. So the idea there is if if a you know if the cops get a call from you know one main street and they look at their dashboard and it tells them that there's somebody at one main street that's potentially very dangerous, they might go in there with you know all guns blazing in a way that they wouldn't if they're going to like a white suburban neighborhood, for example, where the threat scores are very low. Mm-hmm. But again, the problem is that there's no way to correct this information. And in fact, a lot of this information is incorrect. So, you know, it's bad enough when you don't get a job at Walmart because of something that an algorithm thinks you posted on social media, but it's much, much worse when you get into the consequences of deadly violence being used, right? Like the stakes right. are incredibly high. Um, And unsurprisingly, the threat scores are very tied to socioeconomic class and race. Mm. So there's a a real call there by a lot of social justice groups and civil rights groups for more transparency on the part of police forces and localities and municipalities that are using these products because their decisions are being made about citizens and residents based on information that those people don't have access to. Mm. Wow, yeah, that's um that's all really interesting and I think yeah, again it's so important to think about the way that um that these issues impact people differentially. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind my asking about how these issues might evolve during the current COVID-19 pandemic and specifically I think recently in the news uh we've started to hear a little bit about how obviously contact tracing is one of the methods that the experts are mentioning as being crucial to containing the further spread of the virus as more people return to public life. And I think it's not very hard to imagine how GPS tracking on smartphones could be mobilized to help with this. So, you know, maybe it's a good thing that, um, that, you know, this data on where we are and who we've been in contact with could be traceable. And so I'm just curious about whether you've been thinking about privacy in the context of the pandemic and some of the tools that people are starting to talk about and even build toward this end? So the the problem with these kinds of apps that are trying to, or these kind of companies or initiatives that are trying to build these systems is not necessarily the systems themselves, although right. generally we find that when people build systems, the same biases that those people in the society that they live in hold, those get put into the systems. Right. The real problem is overreach and abuse because we have very weak data protection laws in this country. We have very weak laws around what information the government can and can't have ad- have access to. And we're very bad about keeping information in silos. Mm-hmm. And in this situation, even if you have all this information about people's interactions that is in this system that is supposedly for public health, right? Or that is some kind of anonymity to it. We've seen over and over and over and over again that when you have all of these data points, not only is it extremely easy to identify people based on these data points, there's also such a huge push for that same information to be used by the government and by police, right? 
So I don't believe for one second that any of these apps would stay in the public health realm, even if the people who are designing them have the best interests of everyone at heart. Clearly, it does seem like contact tracing is something that's pretty necessary to contain the pandemic. But I just worry very, very much that once this information is tracked and once this information is digitally instantiated, it can now be moved around and combined with all kinds of other pieces of information Think about the way that you could you could combine that information with immigration databases or with ICE databases mm. to try to do targeted deportation raids, right? It's, it's very frightening. Um, and so my worry here is that we're opening a door that may – ju- it's justified by saying, okay, well, this is the pandemic. People's lives are at stake. We need to do right. this. But it's going to open the door to using this data for all kinds of other ways that we probably wouldn't think we're socially responsible or acceptable. Right. Yeah. And going back to that that issue of us giving our consent to this kind of thing, right, we might think, well, yeah, I'm doing this in the, right, in the interest of public health. That's what I'm agreeing to. But we don't know what's going to, where that's going to lead. Um, so I want to just ask about one last issue before we start wrapping up. You know, I think in the wake of the 2016 election, we've all heard a lot about fake news, alternative facts, uh, the spread of misinformation online. And there's obviously been a lot of kind of pundit chatter about that. And in 2017, you and Rebecca Lewis published this really fascinating report with data and society called Media Manipulation and Disinformation Online. And we can definitely link to that. Um, And I follow political news pretty closely, but your report really still surprised me. And I'm wondering uh, what in the course of your doing your research for that report, what were some of the findings about misinformation online that surprised you the most? So we were doing a very specific set of qualitative observations. We were spending a lot of time in these kind of far-right or alt-right spaces. So we were on 4chan every day. We were on Gab, white supremacist blogs like the Daily Stormer, like we were in the fringy parts. Of yeah, the internet. <laughs> we're deep in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what we what we found was that there are all of these narratives that are bubbling up in these really, really fringe spaces. Yeah. And they're being strategically mainstreamed by the participants. And those participants are looking for vulnerabilities in social platforms and in media institutions in order to spread often watered down ideas, but versions of their ideas, but but ideas nonetheless that are that are completely coherent with a project of white supremacy, right, or a project yeah. of, of of creating a white ethno nationalist state. And you know, I had been following a bunch of these fringe groups for years. Like I find the men's rights movement like extremely interesting. For I don't know why, mm-hmm. and I'd been following them for years. But what really stunned me was to the extent that they were successful in getting their ideas out into the mainstream in a way that really fundamentally changed modern political discourse around things like race um, in a way that I don't think I would have been able to predict, right, Yeah. before the 2016 election. Like, I didn't think that anti-Semitism was going to become as mainstream again mm-hmm. <laughs> as it, as it, as we see that it is now, right? Where you see anti-Semitic ideas being thrown around in a lot of different spaces online um, in a way that, you know, me and my naivete, I thought, okay, well, that's the thing of the past, right? Or at least those of, you know, those of us who struggle with anti-Semitism, not on a daily basis, right? Yeah. So the sophistication by which these actors 
understood the way that modern media functions. You know, journalists who are super overburdened, they're doing like five different jobs, they're, right. or they're, they're, their job requires writing 10 blog posts a day, so they're getting most of their sources from Twitter, they don't have the shoe leather to go out there and be interviewing people. They were falling for these like hoaxes and pranks and trolls nonstop that got the alt-right so much more media attention than they should have yeah. gotten. It's the ability to manipulate the media's love for political spectacle and the sort of contrarian idea or this idea that you have to see both sides of every issue, which is preposterous. And at the same time, it's really effective. So it's it was very dispiriting to me to see that over and over again, social media platforms and journalists were playing key roles in amplifying these narratives. And that social platforms have been very inadequate in their response to this mm. type of amplification. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what struck me so much reading your report is that, you know, maybe I've never been on 4chan or QAnon. I've never read the Daily Stormer, certainly. But I could read, you know, I could be a consistent reader of the New York Times or the Washington Post and essentially be seeing these conspiracy theories being given real legitimacy and and just sort of skewing my sense of what is actually, you know, what is actually happening out in the world. So that was super interesting and I appreciated the, that. Yeah. The other it. thing I'd like to mention is that often when disinformation or misinformation is discussed in the abstract, people seem to see it as like, oh, this is incorrect information. This right. is inaccurate information. This is like information that's just wrong. But it's not just that. It's deeply ideologically skewed information, and it's almost always racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic, and xenophobic. And mm -hmm. without understanding that, that focus, we miss the forest for the trees and we're unable to solve the problem. Because if you can't understand that racist disinformation is playing off of a 400-year history of American racism, then you're not able to use the tools that you need to stamp it out, right, or to to combat it. Um, right. And so I've been very frustrated because I'm always pushing this agenda that the the way that this stuff gets into the mainstream is it uses these, like, wedge issues that are more yeah. um, acceptable to a lot of people. So, for example, when the alt-right is recruiting young men, they start with anti-feminism, always. Mm -hmm. They're always, like, it's you the know, gateway. Yeah, yeah, it's always like, oh, women are so uppity. You know, why won't a woman sleep with you? They all think they're so great, but women are en enrolling in colleges and greater rates than men and men's suicide rates are higher. And what about father's rights and yada, yada. And there's this whole spiel, right? And when the alt-right is trying to make inroads into mainstream conservative communities, they start with, with anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant attitudes, um, and a lot of communities, anti-trans attitudes or anti-non-binary attitudes are where it starts. So you have these issues that are, you know, they're more acceptable. Yeah. And that, and you, and those, that's the way that these discourses start. Mm -hmm. And then as you get more and more into them, then you start seeing the virulent racism or the virulent anti-Semitism. Um, and it really... Without acknowledging that <laughs> and without acknowledging those connections to mainstream discourse, they're not solvable problems. Right. Yeah. And that feels like a genie that's been let out of the bottle that is just going to be really hard. I mean, what do we do with that, right? We can definitely start talking about regulating Facebook and um, trying to strengthen journalism again, but it just feels like some of these problems 
kind of exceed the internet. They exceed technology. And that feels like kind of a harder um, nut to crack or a harder thing to reckon with. How do you think about that in, in your work, sort of what is technology, what is human, and how do we, I don't know, how do we work to solve some of the problems that those two things together have created? Technology is human. It's made of humans, it's made by humans, and humans use it to interact. It's social. It's used by people within social contexts. You can't extract technology from society. They're so inextricably intertwined that one doesn't exist without the other. Eh, yeah. I, I don't know if I 100% buy that, but you know what I mean. Like there's, yeah. There is this inextricable link between technology and society. So if you're saying, okay, well, there's a bunch of racism online. How do we fix that? Let's use technology to fix it. Mm. You can't because, you know, we have had a lot of very smart and very driven people for many years trying to eradicate racism. And it's still here. It's still present with us on a daily basis. Yeah. So the, the question is, how do we acknowledge that existence and then do the work within technology that we need to do. So when we think about regulation, Europe has been sort of a leader in passing what I think they hoped were comprehensive data protective laws under the GDPR. Unfortunately, you know, I think those laws have a lot of great intentions. The way that they have been operationalized has not always been the best. But often when you're talking about the overreach by social media companies, you see lawsuits taking place in the EU or in countries like Ireland rather than in the United States because there isn't a regulatory board in the United States that's willing to actually take Facebook to account for some of these things. So, for example, mm. we don't have laws about data brokers. We don't have any law. They're, they're, not, they're basically unregulated. We don't have laws about information mm. from different different aspects of life being integrated. What we do have is a sort of patchwork where there are certain types of personal data that are highly regulated, like educational records with FERPA or health records with HIPAA, but we don't have any kind of principles that would apply to all of those types of data. So for example, we have something mm. in place called the video, I think it's called the Video Records Privacy Protection Act that was passed in the 1980s under Reagan during the uh, Bork hearings for the Supreme Court because Bork was badly embarrassed by somebody going and finding out a list of everything that he had rented from a video store and that becoming part of the trial. So they then passed a law saying you can't you, you can't get somebody's video records. Like, those are protected information. But at the same time, you're, you can subpoena or a cell phone company and get access to every single number somebody has texted without even telling them that that's been done. So there's no principle right. underlying it. It's just this sort of patchwork of different laws. And we do need comprehensive data protection laws. But again, I, want, I worry that we're not in a regulatory climate where those laws – any laws that would be enacted would really be well thought through or would have the impact that's intended. Yeah, that's really that's really helpful. And so to wrap up, the last question that we're asking all of our guests is what is the next big question that you think we need to be asking as we study the internet and sort of what it's doing to us as societies? I have no idea. <laughs> There's so many interesting things about the way that the internet functions 
I'm someone that always is going to want to ask like five or six questions rather than yeah. rather than yeah. one. Um, and that's why I'm glad there is such a strong set of people working on different aspects of critical technology studies and critical internet studies, um, yeah. coming at it from, you know, computer science, from information science, from the humanities, from media studies, from communication, sociology, anthropology, because we need, because this is such a comprehensive part of modern human existence. We need all the tools we have in our arsenal, every discipline, every method mm. in order to yeah. investigate it fully. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Alice Marwick for sharing her thinking about data, privacy, and the human side of technology. You can find links to her work at publicbooks.org slash podcast, including an essay that Alice wrote for Public Books about Wikipedia and the politics of openness. You can follow this show in Public Books at Public Books on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about the work we do. We'd be so grateful if you would subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. And next time on Public Books 101, I talk to two really exciting scholars doing cutting-edge work around culture on the internet, Lauren Michelle Jackson and Richard Jean So. We're going to think about what happens in a space, the internet, where anyone can say almost anything they want at any time. What's new about internet culture? And how democratic is it really, given that long-standing dynamics like cultural appropriation continue to flourish online. So I hope you'll join me for the next episode of Public Books 101, The Internet, as we ask, what is the internet doing to culture? This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library, for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced by me, Annie Galvin, with production assistance from Jess Engebretson and Kelly Dean McKinney. It was edited by Jess Engebretson. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project and to the Mellon Foundation and the American Council of Learned Societies, where I am a public fellow. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time.